You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Business Ethics Through the Ages By all accounts, Cadbury is an outstanding example of a company that made a successful journey from an early pioneer in industrial welfare, where, as George Cadbury put it, the first thought is of the welfare of the work people employed, to a modern, global, responsible company of the 21st century, in which sustainable business practices are the bedrock of their strategy, represented through their sustainability commitments, namely to promote responsible consumption, ensure ethical and sustainable sourcing, prioritise quality and safety, reduce carbon, water use and packaging, nurture and reward colleagues, and invest in communities. Cadbury are, in short, a prototypical company of the age of management, and I will return to some of the features they encapsulate later in the chapter. To begin with, however, I want to explore how we got here, looking at a brief history of the corporate sustainability and responsibility movements. Much like the origins of philanthropy, we can go back many thousands of years to discover the wellspring of responsible business practices. One of the clearest threads of ethical debate relating to business has been the practice of usury or charging excessive interest on loans. Usury can be traced back approximately 4,000 years and during its subsequent history it has been repeatedly condemned, prohibited, scorned and restricted, mainly on moral, ethical, religious and legal grounds. Among its most visible and vocal critics have been the religious institutions of Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, Islam and Christianity, as well as ancient Western philosophers, politicians and various modern socio-economic reformers. The earliest references to usury are in the Hindu Vedic and Sutra texts, as well as the Buddhist Jatakas. Among the ancient Western philosophers who condemned usury can be named Plato, Aristotle, the two Catos, Cicero, Seneca and Plutarch. The criticism of usury in Islam was well established during the Prophet Muhammad's life and reinforced by his teachings in the Holy Quran, dating back to around 600 AD. The original word used for usury in this text was riba, which literally means excess or addition. In Judaism, the Hebrew word for interest is neshek, literally meaning a bite. In Christianity, the anti-usury movement reached its zenith in 1311, when Pope Clement V made the ban on usury absolute. This stance gradually weakened over the centuries, especially with the rise of pro-capitalist Protestantism. But even Luther and Calvin expressed reservations. Calvin, for instance, set out seven crucial instances in which interest remained sinful. Furthermore, the architects of capitalism and modern economic theory, Adam Smith and John Maynard Keynes, both felt that interest should be strictly controlled to prevent its negative effects. And what were these negative effects? There are six principal arguments against the practice of usury, namely that it represents unearned income, it is a form of double billing, it exploits the needy, it is a mechanism for the inequitable redistribution of wealth, it is an agent of economic instability, 
and it results in discounting the future. These critiques are explored in more detail in a paper I co-authored with Alistair McIntosh and published in Accounting, Business and Financial History in 1998. For the purposes of this chapter, I simply use them to illustrate that there has been a raging debate about the ethics of business for millennia. The Industrial Welfare Movement The responsible business movement has more recent direct and concrete roots through the emergence of the Industrial Welfare Movement in Victorian times, of which Cadbury was a part. As Archie Carroll describes in the Oxford Handbook of Corporate Social Responsibility, one of the pioneers was John H. Patterson, founder of National Cash Register in 1884. Much like Cadbury, he ensured the provision of hospital clinics, bathhouses, lunchrooms, recreational facilities, and even profit-sharing for his employees. He became especially known for constructing the first so-called Daylight Factory in 1893, with floor-to-ceiling glass windows that let in light and could be opened to let in fresh air. Around that time, the limits of industrial welfare were being challenged and tested in the courts. In a landmark case in 1883, West Cork Railroad tried to compensate employees for job losses when the company was closing down. However, the court forbade any payments, ruling that it could only spend money for the purposes of carrying on the business. Around the same time, the piano manufacturer Steinway was also taken to court because it had bought a tract of land to be used for a church, library and school for employees. In this case, however, the court condoned the expenditure, since it could be regarded as a strategy for improving employee relations. Hence, right back in the 1880s, the fault line between business interests and stakeholder interests was drawn, and the need to make a business case for responsibility was firmly established. Bear in mind that this was still the era during which a charter of incorporation was only bestowed on those companies that were socially useful, for example water utilities or railroads. As legal academic and author of The Corporation, Joel Bacon put it to me in 2008 like this. The original notion of the corporation was that the sovereign would grant the status of corporation to a group of business people in order to acquit themselves of some responsibility to create something that was in the public good. The notion that this was simply about creating wealth for the owners of the company was alien. How different the world might have been if this principle remained in force. However, by the end of the Civil War, charters were available under any business pretext and were nearly impossible to revoke. Another American pioneer in the industrial welfare movement was Pullman Palace Car Company, which created a model industrial community in 1893 in the south of Chicago, much like Cadbury's Bourneville Village, including higher standards of housing, lighting, playgrounds, a church, an arcade, a theatre, a hotel, and, somewhat more dubiously, a casino. The crucial lesson from these 19th century trailblazers was that they clearly understood that treating employees well was not only a noble thing to do, but was also good for business. Despite these early signs of enlightenment, the industrial welfare movement was stopped in its tracks in the early 20th century by the combined forces of Frederick Taylor's doctrine of scientific management, based on his time and motion productivity studies, 
and the commercial success of Henry Ford's production line model. Glimmers of hope re-emerged with Elton Mayo's Hawthorne Works experiments in the 1920s, showing that a better working environment, lighting, heat and so on, resulted in improved productivity. In fact, many concepts, like group dynamics, teamwork and organisational social systems, all stem from Mayo's pioneering efforts. Even here, however, as with the court cases 50 years earlier, the insidious business case principle was being reinforced better treatment of employees was only justified if it improved profitability. Cracks in the industrial edifice By the late 1930s we see the seeds of an intellectual movement being sown, with the first books exploring social responsibility emerging, including Chester Barnard's The Functions of the Executive in 1938, J.M. Clark's Social Control of Business in 1939, and Theodore Krepp's measurement of the social performance of business in 1940. These were not simply academic ramblings, but rather reflected the growing sentiments of the populace at large. Asked in a 1946 Fortune magazine survey, do you think that businessmen should recognise responsibility for the consequences of their actions in a sphere wider than that covered by their profit and loss statements, 93.5% of the American public said yes, and asked what proportion of the businessmen you know would you rate as having a social consciousness of this sort, most responded either about half or about three quarters. Just a few years later, we see the first cracks in the great edifice of industrial growth starting to appear, with Aldo Leopold self-appointed spokesperson for the decades-old conservation movement, saying in his Sand County Almanac that our bigger and better society is like a hypochondriac, so obsessed with its own economic health as to have lost the capacity to remain healthy. American economist Howard Bowen reflected on this seminal movement in his 1953 book Social Responsibilities of Business, using the term social responsibility for the first time in a book title and earning him the accolade in some people's eyes as the father of corporate social responsibility. However, it wasn't until 1962 that business received its first serious critique for a failure of corporate social responsibility in the form of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. In this scientific treatise, Carson lambasts the chemical industry for the accumulation of toxins like DDT in the environment and their deadly bioaccumulative consequences up through the food chain. Indeed, many regard Silent Spring as the birth sign of the modern environmental movement. Her poetic words still haunt and echo down the ages. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. Even the streams were now lifeless. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it themselves. In 1965, big business received its second shock attack, this time from legal activist Ralph Nader, regarded by many as the father of the modern U.S. consumer movement. 
apart from being a serial minority candidate for the U.S. presidency. In his book, Unsafe at Any Speed, The Designed in Dangers of the American Automobile, he went to war with the auto industry in general, and General Motors in particular. A major contemporary problem, he said, is how to control the power of economic interests which ignore the harmful effects of their applied science and technology. Spaceship Earth on a Collision Course Around the same time, Kenneth Boulding, Barbara Ward and Buckminster Fuller gave the public a metaphor to visualise society's growing predicament, Spaceship Earth, the planet as a closed system apart from solar input. One of the reasons we are struggling inadequately today, said Fuller, is that we reckon our costs on too short-sighted a basis and are later overwhelmed with the unexpected costs brought about by our short-sightedness. It was precisely those unexpected costs that the Club of Rome decided to make explicit when they commissioned their Limits to Growth study, published in 1972. The findings were based on the world's first global computer simulation of five major trends, accelerating industrialization, rapid population growth, widespread malnutrition, depletion of non-renewable resources, and a deteriorating environment. Their overall conclusion, based on a range of scenarios, was that the behaviour mode of the system is clearly that of overshoot and collapse. Today, over 35 years later, co-author of the report Jorgen Randers sees no deviation from the path. In 2008, he told me, The real message of the limits to growth is that on a finite earth with rapid physical expansion, one must be very careful in not postponing action when problems start to emerge. You need to act very quickly. And of course now, with climate change, we are seeing exactly the phenomenon that we were describing. So most likely this will be the overshoot and collapse, or an example of this that we spoke about. Another intellectual that added his voice of warning in 1973 was E.F. Schumacher, author of Small is Beautiful. Economic growth, he said, has become the abiding interest, if not the obsession, of all modern societies. As a result, we have ever bigger machines, entailing ever bigger concentrations of economic power and exerting ever greater violence against the environment. These big as beautiful trends do not represent progress. On the contrary, he said, they are a denial of wisdom. Wisdom demands a new orientation of science and technology towards the organic, the gentle, the non-violent, the elegant and the beautiful. So by the end of the 1970s, it was clear that Spaceship Earth was on a collision course. Moreover, it was clear that it was our industrial model of growth that was propelling humanity towards self-destruction. Right around that time, British scientist James Lovelock gave us a theory of how Earth might react, given the threat. I'm referring, of course, to the Gaia hypothesis, the idea that the Earth acts as a living, self-regulating organism. When I interviewed him in 2008, Lovelock reflected on our current state of affairs. Living things, when threatened or stressed, at first resist. And the Earth system has been doing that for quite a while now. But somewhere around 1900, we began to go beyond the limit. 
so now the system is doing the other thing that living things do and fleeing to a safe place that it knows. And the safe place, which it's been to many times before, is the hot regime, where the global temperature is 5 or 6 degrees planet-wide hotter than now.